Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. I'm going to speed preach. <laughs> Try to cover this whole message in the next few moments that we have together. You know, last week, as we considered this passage of Scripture, I divided this paragraph into two, uh, kind of two divisions. One is the proactive component, and one is the reactive component. And what I mean by that is, as spirit-filled believers, there are certain things that ought to be flowing out of our lives kind of naturally. They don't come out because we're being acted upon. They come out because we're believers, and we're filled with His Spirit, and we're under His control. And Paul says, those are things like, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor the evil, cling to the good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, prefer one another in honor, don't lag in diligence, be fervent in spirit, um, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, be devoted to prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and practice hospitality. Those are all things that come out of us as believers, that we take the initiative and those issue forth out of our lives without any other thing happening out there. We move toward people in that regard. But then there are certain things that should happen reactively because we're followers of Jesus Christ and filled with His Spirit. When life comes at us, when people come at us, when we're banged and bumped, what spills out? You've heard me say before the quotation that a cup brimful of sweet water, imagine a glass or a cup or a vessel that's full up to the top with sweet water. And imagine you bang it with your hand and you slosh some out of it. Or maybe you knock it over and spill the whole thing. And when you do that, what comes out of a cup that is full of sweet water? Sweet water. That a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill a single drop of bitter, no matter how badly jarred. And so when we look at the encouragement in the last half of this chapter about reactive responses. And I titled the message today, Spiritual Reactors. Denise came in the office and said, do you mean that? <laughs> is this the whole title? Is this, is this everything? But I was kind of thinking about atomic energy, you know, functioning under control. And when, it's, when it's under control in the right environment, good things happen. But if something goes wrong with the system, bad things happen, you know? And when we're like those spiritual reactors when we're full of the Holy Spirit, God's power is in us and good things come out of us. But if we're in the flesh and out of control and, and undisciplined by the Spirit of God, when we get banged around and the apparatus begins to fail... Some pretty ugly things can happen. And so Paul is speaking here of the Spirit-filled life, 
And these verses, these last ones, 14 through 21, have to do with the reactions that come from believers. And the thing that I want us to really get this morning is because sometimes when you hear a message like this, your tendency is to say, okay, I've got to go home and do better. I've got to try harder. I, I, I'm not a very patient person. I'm going to have to try harder to be more patient. I tend to, to, to just land on people when they push me too hard. I just come right back at them. And I've got to try harder to control my mouth or whatever it is. And I want you to know this morning that the key is being full of the Spirit of God. And whenever I find things coming out of my life that are undisciplined and uncontrolled coming from my flesh, what that tells me is not that I need to try harder to be good, but that I need to have more of Jesus. I need to go back to the fountain and be filled with the water, the sweet water of the Spirit. Because if I'm truly full of the Holy Spirit of God, then He's the one who's going to come out when I'm banged around. But if I'm not full of the Spirit of God, then I'm going to come out. And the, the essence of this morning's encouragement to us is if you find yourself lacking in one of these areas, instead of trying to improve your reaction, get closer to Jesus and be more filled with His Spirit. Because Paul says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another, do, do not be haughty in your mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Bless those who persecute you. First of all, let's talk about the definition of persecution. How do you know when you're being persecuted as, say, in differentiation from any other of life's jars? How do you know when you're being persecuted? You're, okay, maybe you're not allowed to do something. But I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you an even simpler definition. Okay, I appreciate that. That's right. Somebody's getting in your way. They're not letting you do it. Or, or somebody is smacking you down when you try to do something. But let me, let me just make it so, so real simple so you don't forget. You know you're being persecuted whenever you feel like you're being persecuted. Okay? If you feel like you're being persecuted then this applies. No matter what's going on, whether it's right or wrong, whether in the aftermath you, you kind of look back on it and you say, eh, maybe I was too hasty, or whatever. If you feel like you're being persecuted, apply this verse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. And don't curse them. Now, we tend to use the word cursing in the sense of the things that come out of our mouth, maybe profane things, you know? You curse them out. Or if you're from the South, you cussed them out. I don't know what they did with the R, but, but anyway, they kind of shortened it. You cussed them out. And, and that's kind of what we mean. It's the stuff that comes out of our mouth. But really, a curse is wanting something bad to happen to someone else, whether you say it or not. Sometimes it comes out of our mouth. We say, damn you. 
You're surprised, aren't you? <laughs> Wait a minute. But, we, but we're wanting to, to damn someone. We want to put them down. The, the words that come out of our mouth only betray what's in our heart. We want bad things to happen to this person that's being bad to me. And so, to curse someone, you may not say a word, but in your spirit you're saying, well, I wish they get what they deserve. That guy that fired me, I hope he gets fired too. That person that, that, that uh, did this to me, I hope the same thing happens to them in spades. You know, I hope they get what I got. I want something bad to happen to them because they deserve it. Paul is telling us, bless them instead. Long for their benefit. Hope they do well. Listen, there are only two kinds of people in this world. You know which two kinds? Saved and lost. It's the only two kind of people there are. If it's your brother or sister that's persecuting you, that's giving you a hard time, what do you long for, for them? Do you want them to grow up in Jesus? It ought to actually make us sorrowful that a brother or sister is behaving the way they are. We long for them to grow up in Jesus. That's a blessing. Do you really want something bad to happen to them? You know, and, and if, if there's, there's someone who is not a believer, they're already cursed. Friends, they're going to hell. Sometimes growing up, you know, um, I, I would hear someone say, go to hell. And it was like, do you know what you're saying? Do you have any idea what you're saying? I, I can honestly tell you, I have never in my life said that about anyone. The worst, the worst enemy I can imagine on this planet, I do not want to spend eternity in hell. Hell is a horrible, endless, eternal, painful, conscious separation from God. I don't want anybody to go there. I don't care how wicked they are. I don't care who they are. I don't want them to go there. I want them to come to know Jesus. You know, I want them to come to have faith in, in Jesus Christ. What can I do in a person's life? If they're my brother or sister, I want them to grow up in Jesus. If they're lost, I want them to come to know Him. How can I curse the one who's persecuting me? What am I saying? God who has forgiven me so much. So, Bless and do not curse when you are being persecuted. And you're being persecuted whenever you feel like you are. That's what's going on inside of you. So here's the application. Now, am I telling you something that is like, Paul, you're just... Get with the program. I mean, get real. Come on. You, we can't all be like this. No, you can't in your flesh, and neither can I. But this isn't talking about in our natural strength. We're talking about spirit-filled fellowship with Jesus Christ. And if this isn't coming out of your life, then you need to go back to Jesus and plug in and get closer to Him and allow His Spirit to fill your life. Because this is Jesus' attitude. When He was being nailed to the cross, 
by cruel soldiers for crimes he did not commit, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Forgive them. And then he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is still reactive. Someone else is doing something. They're weeping or they're rejoicing and the Scripture is encouraging us to move toward them and enter into their joy or their sorrow. Someone once said to me that the difference between sympathy and empathy is when I feel sorry for you, that's sympathy, but when I feel your sorrow, that's empathy. That I'm into your pain or I'm into your joy. I'm with you in that. When good things happen to people, do we have the capacity to celebrate with them? Even if it's something that hasn't happened to us yet, we've been waiting for it. You know? Someone else has a windfall profit. Someone else gets the job. Someone else has a blessing in their life. Someone else is getting married and they announce to you that they're getting married and you just got the letter from the deputy serving you that you're getting divorced. Can you move into someone else's joy and feel that with them and celebrate with them? Or conversely, can you move into someone else's pain? You know, the Holy Spirit, isn't this amazing? Jesus said, I will give you my joy. You, you will have my joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And in the same breath, almost in the same section with his disciples, he said, and I will send you the Holy Spirit who is another comforter. And the scripture says that God the Father is able to comfort us in our affliction with a comfort that comes from his own heart. God is one who can rejoice with us when we rejoice and grieve with us when we grieve. And he encourages us by his spirit to be Jesus with skin on to one another. That other people can tangibly connect with us and feel the joy of God or the sadness of God over what we're going through. I love the passage where it says Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus because, I mean, he knew he was going to bring Lazarus out of the grave in just seconds, if not moments. But he's feeling the sorrow of Mary and Martha. Theologians beat that thing to death, trying to come up with all kinds of reasons why he was weeping. He was weeping because it was a grave. A death had occurred. And Mary and Martha were brokenhearted. And Jesus was moved by that. And... Our reaction as believers in the fullness of the Spirit is to enter into others' joys and help them celebrate. Be happy with them. You got turned down on your loan, but they got a house. Oh, I'm so glad for you. I'm so glad. And their sadness has affected you. And oh, I'm sad with you. I can enter into that. John Russ shared a testimony again this morning in the early service about just being with him Thursday night at his sister's funeral and, and moving into his time of sadness. It's love that is demonstrated. 
when we go be with one another in these times, we reflect that. A family in Jesus Christ shares the joys and shares the sorrows. And then he says, when others have idea, or, or he says, I said that. He says, <laughs> I'll get there in a minute, i get back to the Scripture. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I still think this is kind of reactive. When other people have ideas, when other people want to do things, when other people have things to share, how do we respond to that? How do we, how do we receive one another and accept one another? As I was meditating on this verse, it took me back to many years ago, back in the early 1980s and, and even before, when I was attending some church growth seminars. And back in those days, the, the word, the, the kind of the buzzword to make a church grow was the homogeneous principle. Everybody talked about the homogeneous principle. And homogeneity was the key to church growth. Let me explain to you what that is. You know, when you homogenize milk, you make it all the same so you don't have to shake it up in the morning before you pour it on your milk, uh, on your cereal. You make it all the same. Well, the homogeneous principle was churches grow best when they're comprised of people that are all the same. So if you want to if you want to have a growing church in a factory town, make it all blue collar. If you're going to reach the middle management, you want the manager of Jewel and the manager of Chili's and the manager of Home Depot to be in your church, then make your church all middle management people. Look for those kind of socioeconomic people. Probably they have a bachelor's degree at least and and they're in kind of middle management. If you're going to have a church that reaches executives, I mean the CEOs, the CFOs of big corporations, power church, power people, have a power church. Make a church that's designed for the executives. If you, if you want to reach uh, other cultures, then you just need to keep those cultures isolated. And you, you need to recognize that people, the old saying, birds of a feather flock together People come together when they're most like each other. And a church that is designed for a specific socioeconomic and cultural group of people is a church that will grow. And they were demonstrating that. And churches across America were buying into that principle. And uh, it was derived as much by observation as it was by planning. Does anybody see anything wrong with that? Like, maybe it's not biblical. Like, maybe it's anti-biblical. The Bible is all about Jesus, who is the great leveler of humanity, who brings us back together as brother and sister. Regardless of our background, regardless of our culture, regardless of our socioeconomic or educational status, In the church of Jesus Christ, the playing field should be level. But our natural tendency is to identify with people and fellowship with people and build friendships around people who share our common interest in the worldly sense, not in the spiritual sense. And even in churches where there's a blending You seldom find the CEO of a corporation 
when he goes to have a cookout, invite the people over that uh, do custodial and, and service type work. You know, we're going to have a cookout. Who are we going to invite? Well, I'm going to invite my CEO buddies. And when I'm on a committee meeting and I'm sitting here in the committee, I'm the guy with the smarts. I've got the master's degree in business administration. I, I'm the MBA here. And, uh, you know, you work the night shift at the factory. So I know how to make this work, and if you'll just kind of work with me, I'll tell you what you can do. Paul is getting in our face over that kind of thinking. He's saying, listen, and, and here's the thing. Listen to me really close now, okay? This is important. Because it is true that in the flesh, some people are smarter than other people. They measure IQs in school, and some people come out with 80s, and some people come out with 160s. Not very many, but a few. Some people are smarter than others. Some people have had the benefit of more education than others. Some people have more experience than others. But we've just finished a whole series of messages on spiritual gifts. And if it taught us anything, it ought to teach us this. That when you put God's people together around the table, praying over God's work, you have no idea who's going to get the revelation from God for what you need to be doing. You have no idea where that's going to come from. Because it does not depend on the man who wills or runs. It does not depend on education or lack of it. It does not depend on experience or, or lack of experience. It depends on the person who is most open to the Spirit of God. Or if they're all open to the Spirit of God, he gives that information to whomever he wills. A church that is truly directed by the head, who is Jesus Christ, and filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, can bring his mind and purpose and will from any source. And we have no idea when God is going to speak to us profoundly. I think I've told you the story before, but when I was in college uh, and the car would break down and you'd have to fix it, and we couldn't go to the parts store and buy new parts. We went to the junkyard and harvested used parts. And we'd go to the junkyard and there was this fellow that would sit there, he was the father or grandfather of the owner of the junkyard, and he would just sit there under a tree in the front of the junkyard, and he sat there all day long, and he was an older gentleman, he was illiterate by human standards, he could not read nor write, and he sat under that tree, but he had, through his lifetime, had people read him the Bible until he had memorized huge portions of Scripture. And my friend Carrie first put me on to this guy. When we'd go out there, he says, you need to plan a little extra time because we need to talk with so-and-so. And, and, and Carrie would just sit down and kind of tell him what was going on in his life. And this guy would start to talk. And all of a sudden, he would interject some wisdom that was astounding. 
because he sat under that tree and thought about the Scriptures and prayed and talked to Jesus. And he had insight and perception that was utterly amazing. Paul is specifically telling us that in the church of Jesus Christ, we need to react to one another with respect and with appreciation and with openness that God can speak from any source. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And then finally he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This whole question of revenge, Paul says our reaction to wrongs that have actually occurred in our lives needs to be along a specific line. Now, I want to be quick to say, and I'm going to try to get all of this said in about five minutes, but let me be quick to say that one of the things that we need to recognize here is that this is not telling us that we cannot prevent or react in the moment of provocation. What am I, what am I saying? There is nothing in the Bible that says that we cannot respond to a threat or follow the rule of law in dealing with criminal behavior. When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other, he was specifically speaking in the context of religious persecution. And if, if I am going to be persecuted for my faith, if I'm living in a totalitarian regime and the police break the door down and haul me off in handcuffs to some gulag somewhere, then my reaction to that by the Scripture, is to be submissive because I'm being persecuted for my faith. But if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night and threatens your family, my advice to you is call 911 and then hit them with a bat. There's nothing in the Scripture that says that you are not to take action against lawbreakers who, opposing the law, are threatening your well-being or the well-being of your family. Nothing in the Bible that says that. The other thing that Christians get all tied in knots up over is there's nothing in the Bible that says that we are not to support the civil law and the rule of law as it unfolds against evildoers. I've been in court enough times, not for myself, but in many other cases with people, I've been in court enough times to see kind of how things flow. And sometimes Christians get all tied up and feel like, well, yeah, they did this thing, but we ought to just forgive them and, and kind of let them go and, and maybe they'll do better. Maybe kindness will change their heart. Maybe jail will change their heart. 
you know, maybe facing the consequences will change their heart. There is nothing in Scripture that indicates that we should excuse people in society based on a spiritual principle. In fact, we're going to get to that in the next chapter, but the Scripture says the enforcers of the law do not bear the sword in vain. They are a minister of God, avenging His justice upon the ungodly. So there is a difference in criminal behavior that is short-cutting civil law and our willingness to stand behind the law and righteousness. We're not talking about people's eternal destiny here. We're not talking about their relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be just as related to Jesus Christ in a prison cell as you can in a church building. Because that's a matter of your personal walk with Him. So, what we're talking about here has nothing to do with defending against a criminal or with seeing the prosecution of a criminal and the unfolding of civil law. But, Paul does say, never pay back evil to evil. Respect what is right. If it's possible, be at peace with all men. If it's possible, I shared this in the first hour, and uh, someone came up and told me a story afterwards, and I thought it was very interesting because it was very apropos. Uh, They said that um, a young lady went to walk her dog, a teenage girl went to walk her dog, who did what dogs do in one of the neighbor's yards. And the neighbor got all excited and upset about it and followed her back down the sidewalk to the house, screaming and yelling at her. Now, I suppose that, uh, well, I don't go there. But anyway, he followed her back, screaming and yelling at her for what her dog did in his yard. And whereupon her father came out the door, and they got into a yelling match in the front yard. And you know how tempers go, and you get red in the face, and your jugular veins stand out, because all the pressure's building. And all of a sudden, her father dropped over dead with a heart attack. True story. For what? Think about it. For what? What's the big deal? Come in the house, close the door. Tomorrow's another day. Why pursue the argument? Why go there? It's not worth it. Yeah, maybe there's some things that can be done, but in the moment, you know, a lot of times we have to evaluate, is this worth pursuing now? Is this worth pursuing at all? This is a very interesting election year. I, just by virtue of the fact of what I do for a living, I pastor a church. I don't do that for a living. That's a hireling. But I get my living from doing it, which is maybe a little different, I hope. But I spend most of my time talking to Christians. And if I've come up with anything so far in talking with Christians about this year's elections, it's that people are all over the place. People are all over the place. They have opinions about everybody. People are getting upset and angry over this election already. They're starting to, to, to just lose, you know, lose it. And I was listening to a news report that included a report from a psychologist 
who studies human emotion, happiness, sadness, depression, whatever like that. And here's what he said. They have done studies. They've been watching elections for a number of years, and they have done studies. And, and here's what the statistics say. In all probability, if you're happy today, you're going to be happy a year from now. If you're not happy today, you're not going to be happy a year from now. And it doesn't matter who's in office. It will not change your personal state of being, one way or the other. Which is another way of supporting the biblical truth that Jesus' peace and joy is ours, even if Nero resurrected from the dead and became president. It's not going to change my relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not going to change the fact that no human government is ever going to solve the problems of the world. That is for Jesus to do when He comes back. And it's not going to change the fact that this world is going toward the Antichrist before that happens. We need to kind of plug that in. Why would two brothers in Jesus Christ fall out over whether you're for McCain or Obama? Come on! Why would you have an argument and fall out over that when Jesus has put us together in the body of Christ? Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Lest it get out of hand and you can't stop it. In so far as possible, be at peace with all men. I'm not talking about the, the important stuff. Dale Johnson asked prayer this week because he's going to see a brother-in-law who is dying with cancer and doesn't know Jesus. And you know what? That's important. And if it means going in and talking to him about Jesus Christ and having him get angry and throw him out of the room, so be it. His eternal destiny is at stake. That's worth the cost. But an election? The dog? Something, your neighbor planted a tree too close to your yard? Some brother or sister here took your parking place? Sat in your seat? Whatever. Think about it. In so far as possible, be at peace with everyone. Sometimes you can't be. And notice... I'm so glad Paul said in so far as possible. Because you know what? Sometimes no matter what you do, you can't fix them. They're going to be what they're going to be no matter what. And I can't do anything about it. Okay. I've done all I can do to be at peace with all men. And then he says, never take your own revenge. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on, upon his head. Some people read this verse and they say, Ha ha, I got it. I hate that son of a gun. And by golly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kill him with kindness and God's going to get him. I, I, there's a lot of debate on what this verse means, but I can tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that. It doesn't mean you be nice so God will get them. That's not what it means. 
It means you love your enemy, and if he is in need, you even meet his need. And you leave him with God, period. You leave him with God. Let God deal with it. And if the occasion comes that you can treat your enemy with kindness by meeting their need, it may serve to heap burning coals on their head. Now, when this was, this is actually a quotation from the Proverbs, which was written in the time of Solomon. And it was actually, there was a, an Egyptian custom in that time that if a person had done a grievous wrong and they had repented and shown remorse, they would carry around on their head in a, in a dish burning coals. They would literally carry it around as an outward sign that they had repented and shown remorse. It's unknown whether Paul knew of that Egyptian custom or not. Maybe he did. But the point is that what it really is driving at is when your enemy has wounded you and now you have shown kindness to that person in their time of need, it may serve to bring repentance and conviction into their life. And what's the goal? Nothing, friends, is worth hell. Perhaps they will come to Jesus. Perhaps they will come to Jesus. There are stories of missionaries throughout the years and Christians in, in times of great oppression, Nazi Germany, communist China, many other places, where believers have been cruelly treated and persecuted and their loving response, their kind response in not retaliating against their aggressors, but even showing kindness when possible. There are stories of those guards and torturers coming to Christ. And there's nothing more wonderful than to have a soul saved out of my misery. And if perchance my enemy who has wounded me comes an opportunity to show goodness, it may bring conviction into their life and repentance. And they may come to know Jesus. They may get right with God. And now... It has been a worthwhile suffering because it has had an incredibly good outcome. But even if not, this, the message is, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do not repay evil for evil to anyone. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me just conclude by saying, friends, here's the, here's the deal in the last verse. The message is, let God take revenge. Let Him deal with it. You let it go. You let it go. Because if you nurture your hurt or your bitterness, who's it going to hurt? Besides being spiritually wrong, who's going to suffer? You are. Do not be overcome with evil. Do you know how you get overcome with evil? By nurturing a grudge. If you take up that bitterness in your heart and you refuse to forgive, then you are the one who's going to suffer. 
in all probability, if someone's just a real jerk and they're going around messing with everybody and making everybody miserable, you know what? They've just gone on their merry way continuing to be a jerk. It's not, but your bitterness isn't making one whit a difference in their life. They don't care. They didn't care to begin with. The only person suffering is you. They need to let it go in God. Now, and I, and I said this in the first hour too, I say it to you. I could give an altar call up here and say, okay, everybody in this room that's struggling with bitterness and anger over a relationship that's where someone's wronged you, let's come forward and give it to Jesus, and we're just going to be done with it, and you're going, to, you're going to be happy from this day forward. I could say that, and it would not be very effective. Because I know sometimes the wounds go so deeply that you can't just, in the blink of an eye, take them away. People who have been divorced on the receiving end of the divorce are sometimes grieved for, for years. And they're wounded and hurt for a long time. And when I was in Tennessee in a church and a couple of men caused that church to come unglued and, and it just fell apart at the seams and they destroyed that church and damaged it and they hurt me and they hurt a lot of people. And for nearly three years daily I said, God, I choose to forgive. I didn't feel like it. But I had to let it go. And in time, if that is your purpose in time, God will bring healing. But my message to you is if you have been wronged, you have to let it go. You have to give it to God. You have to forgive even if they don't ask for forgiveness. You have to let it go. Because God has forgiven us of everything and cleansed us from sin and we didn't deserve it. And He has done it. And we are His. And if you nurture a grudge, it will damage you. You will be overcome by evil. But if you let it go, you will overcome evil with good as you give it to God. And that's the encouragement. You can't do anything I've said this morning in the power of your flesh. You can only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the only way you can do it. Father, I want to ask you this morning to just minister to us. And speak to us through your word. And teach us. May we be spiritual reactors. Because we are filled with your spirit. And Lord, to the extent that we are not. Remind us this morning that the solution is to come to Jesus. And to seek to be filled afresh. Because this stuff is not natural. And it will never come out of us. It can only come when Jesus is filling our lives by His presence. We ask it in His name. Amen.